Hey, I'm Allison Hare, and welcome to Little Left of Center, the podcast that interviews culture changers that are reshaping our world and breaking new ground. Without darkness, there is no light. Rumi. On today's episode, my guest is Jen Roberts. She is the founder of the celebrity favorite, the LB brand, and newest creation, House of 88. Through processing profound loss in her own life, she's been able to turn her string of personal tragedies into an empowered transformation. And I thought Jen's story was extraordinary for so many reasons. And I also feel like grief and loss leave people, well, at a loss. It's a part of life, and maybe the change in culture is not feeling so alone when you're dealing with the toughest situations. Warning, this episode contains graphic and disturbing content about suicide. Please use caution if this could be triggering. Hi. Hi. Well, uh, welcome back, Jen. That's me. Yeah. Hey, welcome back, Jen. <laughs> we're doing take two today. So we're here with uh, Jen Roberts. Jen Roberts is this amazing, brilliant, creative artist and entrepreneur. And we tried to do an interview a few weeks ago. Um, but Jen also has a newborn and said, you know what, he's always on the boob, he'll just sleep. And uh, he came over and took the show over. So we're we're in a redo mode. Yes, basically, I said, <laughs> can we can I come back and we can just do it sans baby? Because I'll be able to concentrate. Baby. Yes. So thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I'm, I'm excited to have you. And it's it's interesting, because as a culture changing podcast, one of the things I think is really, really important to address that we don't address enough is grief and loss. Sure. And I think people feel uncomfortable when somebody around them experiences grief and loss or somebody um, somebody is experiencing it firsthand and feels that pressure, whether it's somebody saying it, to get over it, to move on, to just get back to normal in sure. some way when they're kind of dealing with some things. And so Jen Roberts of House of 88 and founder of the LB brand, which is how I found you and how I fell in yes. love with you. Awesome. Because um, the LB brand is a lifestyle brand that had all of these really unbelievable, not unbelievable, but these incredible slogans that just really resonated where it was, it was, you can tell me, tell me about the LB brand. <laughs> sure. Yeah. The LB. I'll run this entire interview by myself. You just relax. <laughs> you just, yes, yes, yes. Um, so the LB brand started back in 2013. I was staying at home with my first son. Um, and I was navigating, uh, being a stay at home mom, but also navigating the loss of my mom as well as becoming a mother at the same time. So motherless motherhood. And, um, I'm sure as anyone knows who has ever stayed home with a, with a child before, there is definitely a loss of your sense of self. Um, and so I just would, when I would put him down, I would just start to create, even if it was just drawing something. And um, what ended up developing into this lifestyle brand that really was empowering mothers and children and later on fathers to really kind of claim their parenthood or childhood for themselves. And so during that process, I things that resonated with me and things that would just come up while I was creating, um, they became these slogans. And when I put them out, people started to really connect to them. And then it just kind of took on a life of its own. And one of the things I thought was really interesting about you, and I, I 
got it as soon as you said it, where you said the LB brand becoming a new mother. A lot of people, when they think mother, there is a negative connotation that all of a sudden you are less than. And it was almost like an empowerment of um, some of your slogans are rise of the woman Mm -hmm. and protector, lover, mother. And so if people have seen me out and have seen this thing where they're like trying to read my chest going, wait, that's weird. Right. What? Protect. I don't get it. Um, But and then when they read it, they're like, oh, that's really cool. And uh, and these slogans like the one I have on my daughter who I wear, she's about to grow out of it. And I'm so sad because I love it so much. But it says, dear big me, I can't wait to see who I grow up one day or yeah I can't I can't I can't wait to meet who I become what is it (laughs) what is it so it's dear big me I can't wait to see who I become one day the little me I love it and it's it's so cute and so it had resonated so much that Gwen Stefani was wearing your things rise of the woman or or I am modern motherhood Mm -hmm. and even fatherhood as well um so it's like a family lifestyle brand so uh, Rose McGowan and JLo and mm-hmm. Gwen Stefani had it all over the Instagram and you had all over the Instagram. The Instagram. <laughs> I, I'm just like a like hundred years old. I just learned about Instagram. Go on the Google. <laughs> exactly. The the face place or face space. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, it had really struck a nerve and I wondered what it was like for you creating this thing just out of your own loss and and this creative aspect to empower women that you have somehow turned a string of personal tragedies into a really unbelievable transformation. But I think even beyond that, that you've had a power to be able to connect with people in another way. Sure. So I'm curious to see what it was like as people would respond back to you from these slogans, from what you represented, from what you put out into the world. Sure. I think that's kind of, um, that's a little bit layered. So how I felt, I think at, at, at one point when I knew that I had something that was resonating, I, I, I looked at the market and I was like, if there's, there is no actual real lifestyle brand. Like if I were to go into Macy's, there's not a lifestyle brand that I that is speaking to me and who I am. So because I couldn't find it anywhere, now I'm going to go out and create it. So I'm creating these things and people are wearing them. And if anything, I think not that I'm creating for, but when when you get that sort of validation, you're like, wow, I'm okay. I like I'm on to something. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. So for me as a creator, it was pretty phenomenal. I mean, most people only see someone like JLo or Gwen Stefani in the, you know, in the TV screen or, you know, now it's our phone screen. So that was pretty, that was pretty wild for me. I was just like, this is, this is way bigger than me. And this is resonating with more than just the mom in a cul-de-sac or, you know, someone like me who I would, I would be bold enough to say, I think I'm a hip mom. So, (laughs) you know, this is, this is resonating with, people that are celebrities and you know live in their own life and I think the really cool thing about Gwen was uh Gwen at the time that she would that she came out she was the first big celebrity that kind of broke it and when she came out wearing those sunglasses it was during a time that was basically in response to her husband at the time who had cheated on her and she had left him and so she was then seen once that broke she was seen for the next two weeks 
everywhere in those sunglasses with her children. So at that point, too, I realized not that I am modern motherhood. It actually has nothing to do with a man. But for her, she was using that as a way to claim something for herself or to define something for herself. And I was like, wow, that's really fucking wild. Yeah. And what and and so the the brand had morphed into something else where you had a brick and mortar store. I did at Pont City Market Mm -hmm. in Atlanta. And then what happened? Um, I think so with anyone who's an entrepreneur and anyone who uh, has a startup business, it's all about taking risks and um, some risks pay off and some risks don't. And so um, at the time that I took the risk to do a brick and mortar, um, LB had been in existence for about, I think, five years um, just online. And I really was looking for that space to be more of where I could cultivate more community in, in, you know, in person, not just online. And it just, it didn't work. I mean, the business didn't work in that space. And so, uh, last December I had to make the decision. I was like, okay, well it's, you know, business is business. And you, I, I couldn't continue to keep going. And I think, I used that as, you know, I guess this is time for me to kind of go back into my cocoon and wait to see what I come back out as. So it seems like, and and you were also gestating a life at the same time that you were. I had become pregnant. You Um, had become pregnant. And so it it sounds like a perfect time for a transformation or a transition. Even though I was not, I mean, I was not ready for it. I, you know, I think... I did not want that to happen at that time. That was not something that I was, you know, I went into that like, okay, this is going to be able to take it to the next level and it didn't work. So I had to go through a grieving process with that as well. So as we talk about grief and loss, Mm -hmm. and like I said at the beginning of the show, I feel like um, as Americans, we are taught to get over it, to medicate ourselves through whatever method it is, to not feel and I think that from a from a, a healing perspective, I'd love to know your perspective and certainly if you're willing to share your story, because I sure. think your story is important. But I also feel like it's so hard to heal unless you process it properly. And the reason why we are so over-medicated as a nation, we are obese, we are over everything, but what we're not is healing as much as maybe we should. And I think part of of stories like yours and experiences like yours, I think you can shed a lot of light on sure. on your journey if you're willing to share. Sure. Go ahead. Yeah. Um <laughs> so, I mean, so the question is how did I how did I process it or yeah, like the what, lack of processing in, in, I guess, America or culture? What are your thoughts on that too? I mean, you went through some really traumatic experiences sure. and really took a different path. Definitely took a different path. And I definitely took a different path from my family, like my lineage and like the, the choices that they had made. Um, I think a lot of the hurry up and get over it, if, if you really take a step back and you take yourself out of it, when you look at what's happening, one person, one person is telling another person, come on, get over it, or a society. And I think that all has to do with an uncomfortability. So it's really not about the grieving person. I think it's really about the person telling them, hurry up and get over it. Mm. Um, 
they're uncomfortable with it. If you think about losing somebody and you think about all the different stages that you go through, um, that's not only is it hard to go through those, those stages yourself, but think about just witnessing someone going through that. There's not a lot that you can do. And I think that that makes people feel helpless and out of control. And so they want to just hush, hush, move forward. Um, and I think for me, I knew that if I didn't process and it's not like the grief doesn't come with a handbook, just like becoming a parent doesn't come with a handbook. And, um, you can read all the self-help books you want, but at the end of the day, the actual work is something you have to figure out yourself. And for me, a lot of it was, if I don't get this out of me, this is going to kill me. And it's not going to kill me in the sense of I'm going to take a gun and and put it to my head, but it's going to kill me. It's going to just become something that is going to deteriorate my quality of living. And and I, I can't let that happen because for me, I mean, the biggest thing was I'm, I'm, a, I'm a parent to a child and I don't want that for my child. Do you feel like if you did not have a child, it would have been a different thing? Did you feel like, because you had a string, like your, your mother passed away mm-hmm. suddenly. You find out you're pregnant. So like a motherless later, mom, three yeah. months later. Yeah. So you're trying to navigate a journey that you weren't expecting to have. And, you know, life doesn't always offer guarantees, but sure. it's, you know, it's, um, it's unfortunate. And then you, um, had some really unfortunate things happen with your brother. Mm -hmm. So, so what happened was my mom suddenly died. And, and at that time I was living in Louisiana, um, with my ex-husband and my brother who was with my mom at that time, he found her. Um, so that was a very, very tragic thing for him. And, um, then the next year, um, my stepfather died and then, um, I guess it was a year and a half later than my brother had killed himself. And, um, but before he had actually killed himself, he had, and I know we talked about this before, there was a purposeful addiction that happened there where he had been navigating so much stuff. And, um, he, I think just felt completely hopeless. And at a certain point said, fuck it, I'm going to get myself addicted to heroin because I know that like once I get myself addicted to heroin, you know, at a certain point you become so far gone that I'll be able to basically end it. Is that a thing? No, like, I it... don't know that that's a thing no, for I mean, anybody. Like, I, but I mean, I, I think I, for him, yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, I mean, whether people say, you know, a lot of people say about people who commit suicide, it's it's like a, the the easy way out. I mean, to be honest with you, I think it's pretty fucking hard to actually kill yourself. I think it's pretty fucking hard to like gather up the, I don't want to say courage because it's not like it's a strong thing to do, but to, to actually pull that trigger, you know, and to do that, it's, I don't think that he ultimately really wanted it. I don't think he saw a way out of where he was. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, how can I, how can I just kind of get really far gone? Yeah. So that was really hard to watch him do that, obviously, the last year. And at a certain point, uh, the last time I spoke with my brother, he had, um, I had called, my sister had called me in a panic, uh, just a little, so people know there's three children in my family. I'm the youngest. My sister is three years older than me. My brother, five years older than me. So she had called me in a panic and said, you know, I just talked to Jesse. He was on the train tracks and 
I'm, I'm driving over there. I'm, I'm getting him. And, you know, I said, I called him and I hadn't been speaking to him because at a certain point I had to cut him out. I, I couldn't go down with the sinking ship again. I'm, I'm trying to raise this toddler boy and I'm living in Louisiana where I don't have any help around me. You know, my husband at the time was working and I mean, I was just so emotionally overloaded that I'm like, if, if I don't like sever this, I'm going to go down with the sinking ship. So that was probably one of the hardest decisions I've ever had to make and go through with in this life. And the last time I spoke with him, I called him and I just said, Jesse, like, I love you so much. Like, please, what are you doing? Like, I don't want you to die. Like, you, you, you got to come out of this. Like, I would go to hell and back for you. But like, you have to make the choice that you want to get better or that. And I remember he said he was just so emotional. And he just said, fuck you. I don't even hear from you anymore. And like, I just remember being like, fuck and he just hung up on me. And that was the last time I ever, mm. I ever heard from my brother. I ever heard his voice. That was the last thing he said to me. And do I know that above all of the pain and above where he was, if, is that really truly how he felt towards me? No. But the worst case scenario happened. And I think a lot of people, when they're navigating loving somebody who is either an addict or is, you know, very mentally unstable, there's mental illness, and it gets to a point for them where they're like, I've got to, I've got to pull myself out of this and pull back. The thing that usually makes people an enabler is, but what if they die? And that happened. And like the worst, the worst thing happened, happened. And I'm here to tell you, you can actually get through that, but it definitely is an added layer of pain in the grieving process. It's not easy to navigate. How do you, how do you, I'm sure that people have probably come to you with stories where they feel like they are out of control with somebody they know and love who might be suffering from addiction. What do you tell them? You can't change them. You can't change them. It is the... Is it better to pull out or is it better to try? Um, I, think, I guess it depends on the, you know, scenario. Well, I think that when people really understand, so the thing that my brother taught me, a gift that he gave me, and, you know, we can talk about at a certain point, getting to a place in your grief where uh, you're actually able to, sh there's a shift in perspective. There's a real genuine shift in perspective where you feel differently or see things differently about it than when it first happened. Um, but I think the biggest thing that I've, I've always told people is you can't change your insert name here um, unless they choose to want to change their situation, whatever it is. They have to choose it. You can be enabling for the rest of your life or until they die. It's so hard because it's, um, I think, again, as a nation, we are doers. We want, you know, okay, this is a problem. How do we fix it? And when it's out of your control, I'm, I'm interested to learn about how you chose to cope because I think how you chose to cope was, really noble and fucking hard, especially considering your lineage, like you mentioned before, of, of maybe coming from a string of addicts. Sure. A string of addicts. There was a ton of mental instability. And I think that a lot of that stuff runs in a ton of families, but it manifests in different ways. You know, in another family, it could be packaged really beautifully um, that people really wouldn't know. And in, in other families, you know, they're, you know, 
it's very obvious, you know, yeah. maybe they, I don't know, live in a trailer somewhere and hardly ever wear a shirt or I, you know, like it's so one of the biggest things that helped me to choose to want to heal, um, is that recognizing that where I came from, like I said, I, I came from a string and there's a lot of addiction and there's a lot of mental instability, but I think that that is a, um, a symptom of it not being dealt with, right? So when, like, so when someone says, "Well, I come from this family that's got a ton of addiction and blah 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 blah," it's like, well, I, it's just not really, it's not being dealt with. That's why it keeps going on from generation to generation to generation. So for me, I knew that like the real change really did, and I don't mean to sound cliche, it really did start with me. That that if I wanted to see anything different for myself, um, I had to navigate that again on my own. I didn't have anyone to navigate that, you know, with. Um, and I just want to say for people that are going through grief or going through like a really tragic loss, even if you, you could be surrounded by a thousand people, but that work, that inner work, the feeling of the grief and the feeling of all those feelings, you can be alone in the midst of a sea of people. It doesn't matter who you have around you. It's nice to know that if things get too much, I know that I can check out for a little bit and this person will help support me or help take care of the kids or help with finances or, you know, whatever that may look like, but they can't do the work for you. They can't feel those things for you. Um, and so I think, yeah, getting back to, I just knew that it was a choice that I had to just put one foot in front of the other and kind of take it how it came. And I, I knew that I had to take it head on. What did that look like for you? I think in, in, in regards to my brother, I was just a quick little background. Um, the day that he had died, my sister had called me and she said, I didn't hear from Jesse yesterday. I was supposed to take him out to breakfast. Um, the last week and a half of his life, he was living in a motel six. At that point he had signed himself out of rehab um, and you know, he had exhausted relationships and stuff like that. And he, my sister said, you, you can't come and stay with me. I'll pay for you to live in a motel until you figure out what you're going to do. So he was there for about a week and a half. And during one of the days and she was going to take him out for breakfast and, um, she went down there and knocked on the door. He didn't answer. So again, she's like, I don't know, maybe he got fucked up and you know, he's not here or whatever. And then when she didn't hear from him and then it was the next morning, she called me and I mean, it's, I'll never forget this. A lot of people, when they go through tragic things, a lot of times they're like, I don't even remember. I just blacked out. Like I fucking remember every single thing. Um, she was sitting in her car. She called me. I, I was having coffee with my husband at the time and my little toddler son. And she said, I didn't hear from Jesse and I could hear it in her voice. And it was like, at that moment I got up. And I went into my office and I said, okay, just breathe, you know, and she's telling me what happened. And she said, I have the, like the maid or the housekeeping, they're going to try to open his door. It's locked. And so at that point it was, it was, okay, let's just open the door. And if he's not in there, great. You know, like I think for her, the fear was that he was in there and that he did something. Um, and so I'm on FaceTime with her and I'm just watching her. I'm watching her face and she's looking at the door and she sees the, you know, the, the guy come down and the, it was horrible. The, 
key went in and she went to push it open and it stopped six inches in because it was locked from the inside. And when that happened, it was like, fuck, like before she pushed that door in and I wrote about it in one of the letters, it's like when your life, like literally it is suspended and like that feeling of like my life is suspended in front of me and this can go one of two ways. And I am right here waiting and I'm about to find out which way it's about to go. And so that was something I was so acutely aware of experiencing. And then when it pushed open and it stopped, it was like, fuck, my sister started screaming. And at that point, the door, the phone dropped. She got out and I could just hear her. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. He has a bag on his head. He has a bag on his head. And it was like, I mean, the nightmare started. And it was, I remember in my office just screaming like I dropped to the floor and like just the like guttural screams of experiencing that and like that this was a reality and just banging on like the windowsill and I just like again I remember like the dust particles just just going up um it was it was a night it's a nightmare it's a nightmare to go through that you know your life is gonna change yeah, you're, you're, you're at that moment, at that you're, moment. you're thrown in the middle of it and now you're navigating everything. And I think one of the things with grief and trauma is that like while you're going through it, you're, you're really, you're ping ponging back and forth between, is this, is this really happening? Is this, oh my God, this is fucking happening. Is this really happening? It's like your mind can't compute fast enough to actually, and all that whole experience and what comes after is what you most people spend a lifetime breaking down and, and you, dealing with. You had created a website called Dear Jesse, My Brother. Is mm-hmm. that right? DearJesseMyBrother.com, writing letters to your brother. Yeah. I mean, at that time, like I said, I was um, my ex-husband at the time. He worked in the film business. And so I was kind of, you know, I was living in New Orleans. I didn't know anybody and I'm navigating that and I'm, but a stay at home mom. And so he works so much. So I didn't have this, um, I didn't have this support that I could have. Sure. I could have used. Um, and I needed something. Like I said, the feeling of like, if I don't get this out of me, it's going to kill me. This is going to kill me. Um, did you start writing right away or was it before no, he died? It was several months after he died. Mm-hmm. It was several months after he died. Um, and I, I just sat down and one day I just, I knew what I had to do. And this overwhelming sense of, I wanted to make it public. So, I mean, his death came as like a, a really big shock. I mean, I was, to people where we grew up and that knew him and that knew him when he was really like alive and, and, and good. I mean, if you could have seen pictures of my brother in high school and things that he did with his life, I mean, no one would have pegged him that his life would have ended this way. Mm. He was, I mean, physically he was absolutely, he was beautiful. Um, he had so many things going for him. He was, he was brilliant. His IQ was like a one fifty three. Like he was a genius. Um, and yeah, people just would not have ne- necessarily thought that that's how things would have ended. So I really, I think I just, I, I think part of me making it public too is like, I didn't want to be alone with it. I just didn't want to be alone with it. And so 
I started writing and then I just kept writing. Did you feel like you knew you weren't alone, meaning people would read that and get it and get you and understand or feel like they were not alone? Because didn't you say that people would reach out to you yeah. after reading these letters? And I thought it was interesting because on, on that website and those letters to your brother, you go into very graphic detail and it's beautifully written, but the pictures are so graphic in a way that's, that was hauntingly beautiful. Not sure. graphic as like, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, stuff you're going to see on like faces was, of it, death or something. Right. But it was very real. It was very, it was real. very real. But but things like um, uh, like his, like his, uh, pictures of him in the casket, mm-hmm. you know, people don't normally take pictures of that, but it was so beautifully done. So, and I'll, I'll touch on that. My, so my brother was, he was an artist himself, but he was also a photographer and he was more of a documentary, a documentary style photographer. So he, you would have never really found his stuff. Like he, I remember he hated shooting weddings and stuff like that. Like he really wanted to document the real realness of like a person or that thing in them when they were not aware. Right. So, um, when my mom died, um, I think this was part of his grieving too. He had asked one of his really good friends, his photographer friend, he said, will you document her, her funeral? And I think my brother asked him to do that. I can only speculate because I don't know. He never really said to me. I never questioned it. I got it. I didn't think it was weird. Um, I think he wanted to be able to remember because I think there was something that I remember my brother telling me during when we were growing up, the trauma that he went through when he was a kid. I think that he couldn't remember things. And I think him knowing how big that this was and the thing that he just went through with being the only one that found her and being alone at the house and not having anybody. And like he went through another layer of trauma that was my sister and I did not go through. Right. Um, so I think that's why he wanted that photograph, my mom's funeral. So I knew where my brother stood when it came to that. And I think there was an awareness inside of me that when he died, I called his same friend and I said, will you please document his funeral? Because I knew that my brother on some level would have wanted that done. But I think I also knew intuitively, even though I didn't know consciously, that there was a story that I needed to tell. And that was going to help tell the story. So tell me about your spirituality growing up. What did it look like in your house? Um, very, very colorful. Um, my, when I was very young, uh, my parents were, they met at church. Um, and I, I think it's really interesting. Speaking of trauma, my mom was engaged in her early twenties to a man who passed away suddenly two weeks before their wedding. He was Mm. in a car crash. She almost drank herself to death. Um, I think it was like two weeks after her mom had said, just get over it. You got to move on with your life. She never processed that. And for her, I think she went into religion. That was how she was dealing with it. But she never really dealt with it because it haunted her her entire life. Mm. And it affected her her entire life. So she ran into religion 
And that's where she found my father. They were part of that whole movement that was like born again in like the 70s, born again Christian. So that was exposed. We were exposed to that when we were really young. But by that time, my mom had already started drinking again. So she was not really into it, but my father was. And so we got exposed to that. And it was like, you know, the speaking in tongues and like just this far out part of it. Um, it always made me extremely uncomfortable. Um, and do you run from it today or do you feel like there's some type of tradition or familiarity that you might find comfort in? No, I think for me, I, I think even as a child, I could never put words to it because I just wasn't as advanced, obviously, as a kid. Um, but I think that I saw a level of brainwashing going on. Mm. And I think that that was really uncomfortable for me. And it's interesting because that feeling of everybody, everybody hear this and everybody agree on this and everybody act the same way and say the same things and this, I think that that's actually me like repelling from that has actually come through in so many different areas of my life of like how I've wanted to redefine things and say, I have a voice, even take LB for instance. I mean, it really has nothing to do with my, the religion, but if you think about me wanting to, I'm going to pave my own path. I'm going to make my own way. And I think that comes out in my creative. I like that. I have a voice. Yeah. That is really profound. Yeah. (laughs) And when you think about, um, some tools to help you with healing, how, what are your thoughts on therapy? Huge. I'm a huge proponent of, um, talk therapy. Um, what kinds did you try or what kinds did you find? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Work. Um, you know, the interesting thing was my mom just a little quick background. You know, I was, she was a recovering addict and alcoholic, but she relapsed a lot. So, but she was also very educated and she, she actually, um, created and wrote a course on addiction and would go teach it at university. Good Lord. Yeah. And then I would, oh my God. and then she would come home and I would see her as an addict. So it was like the, just the polarity of stuff was, it was a mind fuck growing up, um, in, in a lot of ways, but getting back to that. So I was always very kind of, I was introduced to therapy and I mean, by the time I was in high school, I was reading codependent no more by Melody Beatty. I mean, Mm. like I, I was very aware of that stuff. Um, and I think it was around 25 or 26 is when I, as an adult, got myself into therapy. I want to talk about your conscious choice of not self-medicating and breaking the cycle, because there are probably a lot of people listening that relate to your story in a lot of ways and feel like they may be trapped in a cycle of addiction, uh, trapped in a cycle of um, tragedies, personal tragedies that they're not sure how to unwind themselves out of. But you made a conscious decision where it has to start with you. It has to be broken here. What did that look like for you? Um, So growing up as the child of an alcoholic and in an unstable home in a lot of ways, people will definitely relate when I say that you, your environment is not predictable. So in a reaction to your environment, not being predictable, we naturally as human beings and especially as children to not lose our shit completely, you want to control outcomes and you want to control the situation because you don't have control. So a response that I have 
struggled with at times, which is trying not to control things, actually worked for me. Because not because at the times that I did experiment with drugs, like in high school, um, it's the feeling of being out of control made me feel even more out of control. So I wanted to run from that because I already was experiencing being out of control here. So you didn't feel seduced by drugs or no, alcohol or did I you? Mean, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like there were at a time that I experimented with cocaine. I mean, did I love it with my girlfriends when I was sitting there smoking cigarettes, talking a mile of minute? Sure. But what I didn't like was the coming down mm. off of it. And I was like, oh my God, like I felt horrible. And I was like, I can't do this. Like I feel completely out of control. And I think you also, when you experience a drug that you can tell has... Again, like I said, I loved doing coke at the time that I experimented with it, but I didn't, I knew that like that, that feeling of like, this feels good to do it now was going to, it could completely fucking just obliterate me. Mm-hmm. So that feeling of like, this thing could control me. I got to get the fuck out. Is there some tools that you did to kind of keep yourself engaged, keep yourself healthy I think that's all relative to how conscious I was. Mm. So maybe what I did to try and make different decisions look different at 19 than it than it does at 37. Yeah. And you are a mom of an eight-year-old? He Is will be, eight? he's seven and a half, yeah. Seven and a half. So and you have months. a son and during this time after he was born, you were going through incredible grief. Sure. How do you teach your son consciously and protect yourself at the same time like how is there something that is important for you to teach as a mother knowing what you know I've said this to my partner now Andrew um, and I I think the greatest gift that I will give my two sons because they know nothing about how my brother died or how their grandmother died or anything like that they know they're not here Um, And in time, as they get older, they will then understand where their mother comes from, what I've had to navigate, places I've been in my life. And the greatest gift that I can give them is the choices that I'm making in real time right now. Because my children will never have the life that I had, but I can't predict things that they might experience once they're older or even still under my roof. Um. And I need them to know that they can get through it. So this work that I do now, like I said, the choices I make in real time are the best gifts that I will give to my children because they're Mm going to tell them what they're capable of getting through. And, you know, I didn't come from this family where I was prepared. I mean, I think at 37, I'm still navigating like what I'm going to do in in, in a way. So I'm not going to be able to give my children this gift of like, hey, listen, these are the you know this is how you do your IRA and yeah, this is totally the there's no you, straight line <laughs> fuck no you know it's like I'm not going to be able to give them that yeah. I'm going to be able to give them like look I whatever life throws at you these skills this is what I'm going to give you this is what I'm going to talk to you about because this no matter what no matter what car you drive no matter how much money you have in the bank all of that shit it really does not matter at all and I think when you go through tragedy you realize you can either use it to propel you um, or make a choice for it not to. And for me, when I lost my brother, 
that propelled me because when you lose somebody like that, it your life becomes really fucking clear mm. about what am I doing here? Do you feel really grateful about your decisions and about your life and about how you live your life, understanding the loss? I think I'm always going to be in relationship of understanding and it's all going to be relative to where I'm at in that, in that process of that. Um, but I am grateful that I, I, I'm grateful that I don't medicate myself. I'm grateful that I'm, I choose steps that even though I don't know how they're going to turn out, it's giving me a best shot at not becoming what I came from. Do you feel like you're running from that sometimes? It's, it's interesting. I feel like all my life I've been running from crazy. Wow. There's a documentary that's it. And that's what it's called. And that was Ooh, the, f- tell me what is it running from crazy? It's amazing. Yeah. I need um, to see this instantly. Oh no, you do. I actually have is it, it on I Netflix. Send it to you. Yes, it is. <laughs> okay, great. It is on Netflix. Um, who was the, uh, Hemingway, Hemingway killed himself. Mm. His granddaughter. Um, I forget her name, but she was an actress. He had two granddaughters. One ended up Mariel Hemingway. Yes. Or Mar- Muriel, Mariel. Yes. Yeah. So, she did a documentary. I believe it's her, the one that's still alive because her sister is dead. And then the other sister is mentally ill. Um, and that was the first time that I acted the words, that feeling, the word, her, the name of her documentary and things that she went through actually put like, I had like a name for it now. Like, because even as a child, I was aware that where I was, was not right. It didn't feel good. So when I saw that, I was like, fuck, man, that's like, that's it. Like, I feel like to some extent, I've always been running from crazy running so that, and and I think anyone who's a child of an addict or an alcoholic or comes from really dysfunctional home that was unstable, they get that. Mm. They get that if they're conscious. There's um, a famous saying or something I picked up from an interview with Sheryl Sandberg. So Sheryl Sandberg said, Yahoo executive that is now the Facebook executive, sure. amazing woman who wrote Lean In. And okay. she um, lost her husband suddenly and dealt with the death of it. And she talked a lot about how she was dealt with in, uh, she's always grieving, but in, you know, immediately after in the grieving period. And that people would ask, how are you? Like questions that are, you know, kind of like, how do you think? I am? You know what I mean? And she said the best thing that you can say to somebody who's grieving is how are you feeling today? Yeah. How are you feeling today? What do you wish people would say? What do you wish people could say to you during those tough times? I think a lot of times, and I think it's a natural response, people walk on eggshells around a grieving person or around a traumatic situation. They walk on eggshells. And I think that that does a disservice. I think that does a disservice to the supporting party of the grieving people or, or person. Um, and I think it does a disservice just generally all around. Um, you can't heal what you don't bring out into the, into the light or to be seen. So if someone lost a child and you know, you're like, I like, I don't even know what to say to this person. It's like, what the fuck would you want someone to say to you? If you see someone that, you know, they're just sitting there with a blank stare. It's like, how do you not look at them and not just want to be like, you fucking miss them. Don't you Mm. like you miss your kid. Having that compassion on somebody to get out of your like 
it, it makes me emotional to get out of that place of I am uncomfortable with this, so I don't want to say anything. But that person is in pain no matter if you say something or if you don't. Oh, that's powerful. My husband lost two of his siblings. Oh. And his, you know, his his parents buried two of their children. And and I didn't know one of them. One of them is Danny, and that's why we named our son Danny. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah, thank you. And uh and the other one died while I was in the picture. Sure. And you know, I, I I could not imagine what it must feel like to lose a sibling. I'm one of seven kids. My husband is one of seven children, mm. you know. Um and and to be and to understand that loss and be able to be there for them. I wish I knew I would, you know, like it's just an awkward kind of thing. You don't know how to be or what to be or how, you know, like, are they good now? Or is it cool? You know? So I think what I'm hearing from you is, is just be fucking normal, you know, and, and just, you know, tell them what's going on. Ask them how they're feeling. Yeah. I mean, cause you know, like, how are you feeling? Like, well, of course, you know, the person is, completely probably feeling decimated by the reality of a situation but just holding space and being there with them and sometimes honestly not saying anything at all is also totally appropriate when I mean there's been many a times that I have I have been sitting in what would feel like a catatonic state of just feeling pain do you know what I mean like at different times Mm -hmm. um and and if someone were to have seen me you know, sitting there on my couch by myself and just tears and I'm just, I have a blank stare, then just wouldn't that be awesome to just go and sit next to them and just be there with them Mm. to just be there with them and say like, I know I'm not, I can't feel this for you, but I am here with you. What did it feel like to feel, and this could be completely insensitive to say, because I don't, I know that you're always in a grieving process. Sure. What did it feel like to come out or through or to feel better or feel joy again? Did you feel guilty when you felt joy after loss? So it's in after loss. It's funny because I do remember the night and I, I didn't know this in real time at the time. The night that my brother committed suicide, I had an incredible night. <laughs> with my son and my husband at the time and a couple that he worked with that came over. And it was just like one of those nights where you were like, God, like this feels really, really good. And then I woke up the next day. And so I do remember in my process of like, you know, thinking about him and the process he went through to actually kill himself. And I'm sitting there just joyful you know, with my son. And Did and, you feel guilty or did yeah. you feel like, yeah, there, there there's a part <sighs> of me that was like, Oh my God, you know, um, but I think feeling joy again after my brother died, I don't know that I wrestled with feeling, with feeling guilty for feeling joy again, because my, I knew that my brother was with me and actively like supporting me. So I went through kind of like, I know this is, we're getting back to that question that you asked that I'm not sure it was even really answered about the spirituality. It always comes Yeah, together. it always comes back. Always I mean, I together. told you kind of where I came from. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always been, now I have a label or for it or a word for it that we can, you know, best connect to, but I've always been intuitive. I've always been sensitive. I've always been able to sense energy. I didn't, but I didn't understand what that looked like 
or what that was and then the things that were attached to that it was like that's mysticism and that's like devil stuff and that you know and I was like what you know because of where I was being Mm. raised um so I had a lot of un unlearning to do and also uh leaning into myself and my own sensitivities but when Jesse died um, and I started to just go on this journey of going into the grief and, and going on the journey with it. And I started Dear Jesse, my brother, and I started making, I mean, he, his energy and he and how I knew him while he was here in the physical world w- was fighting tooth and nail to get me to realize that it was him. And once I finally got that it was him with these certain things that I was experiencing, it was like. I never felt completely alone ever in my process mm. of grieving because I knew he was like, he was there with me. It sounds like he felt like a productive release through those creative aspects, which kind of brings me to sure. your project now called the house of 88. Mm-hmm. And you, uh, you are a self-proclaimed creative visualist. Yeah. I don't I have like no fucking idea, idea what, what that, that is, is. but um, <laughs> from what I can tell, it's like a very dark, moody photographer really (laughs) um I I don't know what does it mean tell me (laughs) I think I've always like I've hated labels like since the time I was a kid like oh this is what I am because I know that as soon as I say this is what I am then that's what I'm not and I hate that because I don't want to limit myself you like the fluidity Yeah. yeah and like I like to give myself constant permission to just chase where that creativity is pulling me so maybe it's writing or maybe it's through the lens or maybe it's you know with design or maybe it's with producing canvases you know to shoot in front of like whatever it is I don't I don't want to say I'm just this and that's it um but no it does heavily revolve around photography so for me a creative visualist obviously I don't have to explain what being creative is the visualist is you know more or less just it coming through that you are responding to it through a visual so whatever that may be. And right now it's, it, it is centered around photography, but I think for you, yeah, you said to me, you're like, your photography is dark. It is. I'm like, Oh, okay. I don't know if it's cause the backgrounds are usually darker, like a black, darker background. I definitely like shadow work when I do. I mean, look, yeah. I can go out and shoot that super airy outside, you know, in the green, you know, and, and that feel good photography that people look at and they're like, Oh, that's so light and expansive. And, but there's a yin and a yang and there's, and I think, One place that I have found that I know, not that I know how to navigate well, but I've spent a lot of time in is in shadows. So I think that that comes through. What is that, um, that line that you have on Dear Jesse, my brother, about shadows? I think it's beautiful. I wrote it down. Oh, I think. Oh, without me, without darkness, there is no light. Oh, is that roomy? Um, it's Jen Roberts. (laughs) Oh, Jen Roberts. Roberts. (laughs) No, but I obviously very much, um, resonated with that and I think for me uh I mean there there was no moving forward there was no light unless I was going to bring all of this stuff like out into it so um I in one of the letters that I wrote my brother you were talking about the loss of a child and you're like you know people your your in-laws who have lost children um I saw that firsthand in real time. Uh, The first time that I saw my brother dead um, because I wasn't there. My sister was the one that found him. By the time my father got there to the motel, 
uh, police and everybody were already there. So everything was like a scene. So he, mm. he couldn't get in there and see my brother. Um, so my sister was the one who had, and when I took the flight up and it was the next day in the funeral home and I'm sitting around the round table and I'm there with my father and my sister and myself and my father's not really participating in the, I don't think he had the capacity to. Um, so, and my sister was pretty much, as you can imagine, going through a different thing. So she didn't really have the capacity. So I was at that table saying, okay, this is what we're going to do. Blah, blah, blah. We all agree on it. And then I said, before I leave here, I said, sir, I want to see my brother. And he kind of looked at me weird, you know, the funeral home director, because I don't think most people do that. They don't. He's like, well, he's had nothing done to him. He's, he's, he's just been embalmed. He has no anything. I said, I don't care. I don't care. He has a sheet over him. Bring him up. So I think there was a part of me. It had, it was real at that time, but it wasn't really real yet because I hadn't seen the reality of the brother that I knew and navigated life with, lifeless. So when he brought him up, my sister went into the room and she saw him and she went out and my dad went in and he was with him. And it took me a little bit again, that feeling of your life being suspended in front of you. And I knew that as soon as I turned that corner again, I'm now approaching another chapter in this experience, right? Mm. So I think the biggest thing for me has always been staying conscious through the experience. Um, And watching my father standing and having my brother on this metal gurney with a sheet over him. And my dad's on one side and I'm on the other side. And in real time, looking and seeing my dad, who is a spiritual religious man, um, ask God to put life back into his son. And he said, put blood back in his veins and, and bring him, like give him back to me. And watching another human being go through that is heart-wrenching. And it being your father and you're seeing that it's your brother that's laying there and like that's the thing that's between you two being a parent now, like I just, I honestly, I asked my higher self and my higher power. I really hope I don't ever have to experience losing a child Mm -hmm. because it is something that is just, it doesn't matter how old you are. I mean, my brother was 37 or 36 when he died. Wow. So yeah. You learn, um, you learn so much from that, but I feel like, um, I have a friend of mine who is a three-time cancer survivor Mm. and she is in her early 40s and she's like Allison I don't give a fuck anymore she's (laughs) like she doesn't (laughs) making decisions are so much easier now because it's so easy to let the bullshit fall away yeah and I don't know if you relate to that fuck yeah I mean I do I I definitely do um I think I'm going through a phase right now like we just talked about about being so sure of the path you were on and then the path changing when it comes to like my work and all of that kind of stuff so I've been navigating, maybe feeling a little unclear, like, oh, floating. What am I doing? Where am I going now? But I definitely resonate with what she's saying. I mean, there's a certain point because you're like, um, yeah, that doesn't really fucking matter. I'm not going to do that. If it doesn't feel good, I don't want to do it. And I don't mean in a selfish way, like, no, oh, I, I only want to yeah. do what feels good. But if that doesn't resonate with me or that doesn't feel like that's aligned with me, fuck it, not doing it. And I'm unapologetic about it. I think you should be. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's a great. Um, I think it's a great position to be as an example, 
um, for that because we have so much shit. We, you know, myself, I'm a huge, (laughs) I am huge at this that I occupy my mind with the dumbest shit, you know? And it just, we all like, do. it doesn't really matter, <laughs> you know? And so, and so understanding and kind of bringing back. Um, and I think I mentioned to you that podcast, it's my very favorite podcast. I don't know if you checked it out. It's called Not Terrible yet. Thanks for Asking. <laughs> yeah. And um, it, the, the host, her name is Nora McInerney. And she is, um, she's a woman who lost a baby through a miscarriage. And her father, and six weeks later, lost her husband to um, brain cancer. Mm. And she had written books about it and started this podcast um, kind of born out of it. And she, um, she the, the podcast, like I said, is terrible. Thanks for asking. And it, it's a great name. And it's, it's what would happen. It's posing the question of what would happen if you answered honestly to the question, how are you? Sure. And so she highlights all of these stories, but what I think, I'm getting chills, but what I think is so amazing about it is that as she tells her story, and by the way, she's fucking hilarious. She's so funny. And by the way, and you know, it's okay to actually have humor. I just want to say this. It is so okay to have fucking humor through a loss. I think that's what her book is called. Her book is called, um, It's Okay to Laugh. Crying is cool too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so, and and she's hilarious. And so she actually started a club called the A Hot Young Widows Club. You know, and yeah. she, it's not like she made light of it, but she. Um, but in a way, you kind of look. In a way, you are. It's like medicine. You know that cliche. You know, laughter is medicine. It really is yes. in a way. Yeah, it is in a way. Like I can sit there and watch stand up, and if they went on a tangent about like suicide and. I could laugh at that. Yeah. It, it That doesn't take away from the pain and like the realness of what I'm navigating or what I've, or like yes. the seriousness of the situation. And that's what I think is she, she has all of these people who have these, you know, really unbelievable stories that they're sharing. But I think what's so amazing about this show is that in most cases, most of us probably will not experience what some of people are sharing but it is such a human approach sure to it and she's so funny she's a perfect conduit to um inviting these stories because she is so funny um but in but in such a respectful dignified human way sure that it makes me feel so much more connected to humans and humanity sure just by hearing these stories it's not even depressing yeah you know like you think well these are really tough things but they're they're actually not depressing at all it's yeah. um it's a really brilliant show i'd highly recommend but um so what is next for you um i think right now like i said you know after um being faced with the reality that i needed to close that business um and then going into this it all kind of coincided with the fact that i had been pregnant and it was like i went into my own cocoon and i and i feel like now I'm just starting to kind of poke my new wings out and um, I'm going to just really kind of follow my creativity right now and the lens, which is something that um, I've been, I've always been drawn to and I've, I've always had an eye and I've been good, but I never really pursued it a hundred percent. And so now that's definitely one of the, the things that I'm doing, but also I can feel, and I'm not ready to completely claim it yet, but I, I know that there's a different 
phase and chapter now coming with Dear Jesse, my brother, that I know is going to start. So yeah. Huh. Yeah. And how can people find you? Um, well, you can find me on Instagram. Um, I just started the House of 88. It's house of dot eighty eight, um, where I have some of the photography stuff and um on let's see, I mean that's really where I'm at. I mean, I don't run under the LB brand anymore, although you can check out the LB brand. There's six years of amazing content and inspiration that you can, you know, go and check out and just amazing people that I connected with and built this global community um, of really pretty badass people. So do you stay connected with them? You know, I do pop in there like every now and again, because, you know, if someone does not know that I shifted out of that, because the so here's the, the business is no longer there, but the community is there and it's alive and it's well, I mean, it's, it's still alive without me, you know, really kind of facilitating it anymore. Um, you know, I'm still getting people that are DMing and saying, you know, getting tattoos of the protector lover mother design and saying, you know, this means so much to me for whatever the reason is, whether it was, it took so long for me to become a mom because I went through miscarriages or whatever, you know, whatever their story is. Um, so the community is there and you can still check it out and connect with people. Um, but right now I'm just under house of 88 and I'm just, just, like I said, I'm just starting to peek my little, my little wings back out. So, well, I'll be sure to link it in the show notes for sure. But, um, but I thank you for being here. I think that our stories are sacred Sure. and your story is profound and it's meaningful and I appreciate who you are. Yeah, Um, especially to people who are going through grief. Yeah. And and I was going to say, speaking of that, dear Jesse, my brother.com. Um, and he, and that's also dear Jesse, my brother on Instagram. And so those are the two places. Beware of that. It's like a rabbit hole. You can't stop reading. Yeah. And I was going to say, if you, if you are interested and you do start reading the letters, it's, they're meant to be read in numerical order. So you would start at one and then yeah it is beautiful so thank you for being here thank you so much and holding space for me round two of course got it (laughs) big thanks to jen roberts for being so raw and sharing her powerful story i can't wait to see her extraordinary creations as she continues to evolve please think of three or four people you know and pass this episode along As for me, I'm building the audience in this podcast, so I truly hope you'll not only subscribe, but leave a review and continue sharing these episodes. I'm also looking for new sponsors for future episodes, so please hit me up. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week.